0: Well, good morning. It's good to see you guys, even though you have the masks. And glad you're here. It's little by little bit we're we're getting, uh, hopefully, more growth, and the virus is going down, and we can get back to what whatever quasi normal is. But it's good to have you here. It's good for those online. Uh, we want to continue on <clears throat> in our study of <clears throat> excuse me in our study of Philippians. But picking up on some things that uh, uh, bringing, bringing what they went through 2,000 years ago and then bringing it forward to where we are today, uh, there's all kinds of things to, to focus on as we think about what Paul wants us to learn. And so that one passage in, that Kim read was What we are is plain to God. What we are is plain to God. And what God sees is what God sees, and what God says is what he says about us. What we are is plain to God, and I hope it's also plain to your conscience, as Paul would say. Well, this passage in Philippians 2 is all about the kind of impression that you make on others because the impression that Christ has made on you. And the idea that you are salt and light, that your life matters, the fact that you have been given a privilege to really know Christ in ways that maybe other people haven't come to know about the Lord. So I wanted to share with you, um, I've been doing a lot of thinking about leadership and since about a couple months ago when I went to that conference on leaders and leader development and uh, have you ever been around people that just they're so good, and they challenge you, and that you just know that somehow they seem to have life together, and there are leaders who who uh, I've been around to just uh, I just feel more I I feel when I walk away from some of these men I think I've got to do more I've got to uh, know more I've got to be more disciplined I've got to pray more I've got but there's a sense of uh, i don 't want to say pressure, but just <clears throat> there 's a contrast I know that i 'm not where they are, and so i'm i 'm more challenged by that and so those leaders i 've had i 've had men i 've been with some people and who are national leaders who were famous for uh, like their devotional life and I knew one guy in particular I picked him up at the airport and i, I won 't mention his name <clears throat> it wouldn't make a difference but his his prayer life was such that he wrote every prayer down, and when there was an answer to prayer, he'd have the date it was asked and the date it was answered. But he had a notebook of this thing. I thought, man, I, I can't keep a notebook. I can't write. I'm I just not that organized. I'm not that disciplined, and I forget what I prayed about. And I just and I always felt like I, I could never live to be like that. You ever be around people like that? That they always challenge you to be more. But it's more of a sense of uh, I want you to be stronger like me. (laughs) And I always felt that. But then there are other kinds of leaders. Other kinds of leaders that I thought, man, I want to be like that. There's something about them that draws me, that attracts me, that says, I want to, what do I have to do to spend time with this person? And so... There are different kinds of personalities and different kinds of leaders that you're drawn to. But have you ever been captured by somebody like that? You're just drawn to, I want to follow this person. Or I want to be with that person. I want to learn what they learned. And so this is the chapter where Paul says, yeah, let's look at this. Because to be single-minded, to know what you want, and to have a sense that that, that which is pulling on you is really who you are, not just trying to compete or compare or to achieve something. And in your bulletin uh, in the church around the world, if you've read this at the back, the first black astronaut on a long-term mission brings his Bible. If you read that little quote, let me read this to you. This is about Victor Glover. He packed his Bible and communion cups for the long journey to the international space station and he said as i prepare to leave the planet it's allowed me to focus or refocus on the things that matter most and he said god assigned me a very the few really important things one this life but also my wife and then my family and we have grown here and so it goes but but Uh, Victor said there's very few things that are important. He was single-minded in the sense that he, he was not going out to explore the universe. He was going out to explore his universe. And he understood his place in that universe. And that's what we want to understand. As we go back to each individual and we think about Paul going into Philippi in the West, the Greeks are going to hear this guy. We understand Paul as the apostle, the sent one who says we have the mind, the one who made the universe. That's an awesome thought in itself. But he says we also have the same desires because the Holy Spirit puts in our hearts the same desires that are in the heart of Christ. And the love of God is poured out by the Holy Spirit. And therefore we know... (laughs) We know Christ in a way that the Greeks didn't know, and so when the Greeks saw Paul coming in, they had a pantheon of gods, a smorgasbord of gods. They already had their belief system, and here comes Paul talking to these pantheon of gods, because remember, they were religious people, but they were also philosophical people. They also had a pantheon of philosophers, and I've I've read this week that there were 357 philosophers that came out of the Greek soil. And the idea from uh going into that that situation, they were trying to figure out what life meant, what is a good life? They were seeking people. They were they were religious and they were philosophical, but they were pagans. And here comes Paul addressing again like Americans who are so far away from a biblical gospel that you had this contrast between biblical prophets and bearded philosophers. I don't know why it is that all the philosophers have beards. (laughs) But they did. Notice that Socrates taught for 40 years, Plato for 50 years, Aristotle for 40, and Jesus only taught for three. He was quite concise in his... And focus on what he wanted to do. This idea that you can figure out life from the culture, as they were doing, it has transferred throughout the ages. And and if your kids go to college, you will come across this guy, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche. And this guy does damage if he goes to the university because he wrote about good and evil. He talked, and he became famous for that phrase that God is dead. And in the, some stall in some bathroom, somebody scrawled, Nietzsche is dead God, you know. So he got even. But the idea yeah. that, that there are people are trying to figure out life, apart from God, and Nietzsche at age 39, at the end, 39, 40s, he had a, a, a closet darkness and a depression that overtook him. He couldn't figure out life. There was no light because he was just a very dark man. Of course, without God, he is a fool. But this philosophy of the world continues to go through, and even our day, you may hear people that you rub shoulders with that laugh and mock that you have a belief in God. Um, Dawkins, Richard Dawkins. It's funny to me how non-Christians or anybody can get famous and a celebrity status by being anti-God. And so they're using the very God as a way to get famous and not giving him the credit for it. Well, there are a lot of people that are kind of messed up that way and, and, and focused on a way of thinking that's not ours. We have other men we want to follow. One you know is Blaise Pascal. And during the science and the development of the Renaissance and when uh, humanity and was really embracing science and reason, uh, Pascal kept it clean. he says, "The heart has reasons which reason does not know and there's the god shaped vacuum and 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 they those men who knew about how people work because science doesn't talk about that they talk about math and in geology and other sciences, but the fact that there's a conflict, there's always been this conflict between philosophers and prophets all the way through. There still is, so we're not exempt from that. But in 1980, this man named Francis Schaeffer, uh, I heard him in Indianapolis and uh, read his works. And the famous one that he, the first one I read was, uh, How Then Shall We Live?, And then I got caught up with his thinking. He was trying to bring the Christian answer to the philosophical issues. And he was the one who became famous for this phrase. He is there and he is not silent. We have a personal God who shares his personal feelings, his personal values, his personal thoughts, his his will. He invites us to be mutually involved in a relationship. Not just philosophically. So Jesus isn't a system. Jesus' Christianity isn't a morality. Christianity isn't a civic religion. And these men had something uh, that, that they offered to the world. Now, I, as I was doing this, I kept thinking, all oh, these men are philosophers and all these current thinkers are men. And So I wanted you to hear uh, that there are women as well that God has put in their hearts, a sense of the same spirit of, of thinking and learning and deeply reflecting. And these three names, I'll just put them out there, Elaine Padilla, Sarah Coxley, and Catherine Sonderiger. These are women who really have embraced that same scholastic academic theological work but these women are really contributing because they understand the heart of God in a relational way just like all the others did but just so you know it's not just a man's world or philosophy it's just it's for all of us so here comes Paul into into Philippi and he knows the mind of Christ he knows the desires of Christ but one thing he knows that nobody else knows is the joy the joy of Christ and so that's what I want to focus on. That, but for them, as Paul would walk around, he was not the apostle. He was the anomaly. He's weird. Do you ever feel weird in the Christian life? That you don't fit in the world? And so, But you're bringing something that they don't have. And that's the mind, the, the love, and the joy of Christ. And when he went in, he said two words. These two words would throw all philosophies on its stand on its head those two words are christ crucified period that alone was the message because nothing else needs to be said once you get to the point of understanding who is this christ and why did he do that well This is the focus of Paul in Philippians because he's bringing to the Philippians a leader that's very attractive. One who's really, one you want to spend time with. And the question that some people today would say, well, why do I want to be a Christian? Why would I want to follow Christ? It's the wrong question. The question is, why wouldn't you? If you understand. And then how to connect the message of the gospel to the world that doesn't want the gospel. Well, Paul had to go into this. And so Paul would go in, <clears throat> and Paul would understand that there are competing passions. There are things that people are giving their lives to that they're not single-minded. They're really focused on all kinds of things. And by the <laughs> way, uh, I mentioned last week that if you're meditating or trying to think, that your brain during a, a normal uh, a minute or so you're distracted like 47 times by different things Pull, and so you're always being called away so there's a lot of information that you're being hit with but when it all settles down you got to boil down to very few things competing passions compelling privileges his invitation to a higher joy that's the title now you guys know that christianity began in jerusalem with two words is Christ crucified, that's Paul, but it began with Jesus who said, follow me. And from Jerusalem, it went to Greece, and that's where it became a philosophy. And so the philosophical discussions that they had to deal with, is, does God exist, is the body raised from the dead, all those things. But it moved from, from Greece, it moved to Rome, and in Rome it became an institution. And from that institution in Rome it went to Europe, And it became a Christian culture, higher culture. And from Europe, it came to America and became an enterprise, big business. And we've lost those words, follow me. If Jesus were to come right here at this park in Chesterland, and he would call for people to follow me, would you be one that would follow Christ? Because you know Christ And the invitation is to follow him. You're not following a system. You're not following a civic religion. You're not following a morality. You're not following systematic theology. You're following a living God in Christ Jesus. Well, there are men along the way that understood this. One was St. Patrick. Have you ever noticed that that shamrock, the shamrock of the Irish, you know what that stands for? St. Patrick used that as the Trinity. And that Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But St. But Patrick knew this. And we have a couple, in a couple weeks he'll we'll be celebrating St. Patrick's. But listen to his prayer. And this was on a, on, on a breastplate. Christ be with me. Christ within me. Christ behind me. Christ before me. Christ beside me. Christ to win me. Christ to comfort and restore me. Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ in quiet, Christ in danger, Christ in the hearts of all who love me, Christ in the mouth of friend and stranger. He goes on, I bind unto myself the name, the strong name of the Trinity, by invocation of the same, by three, the three in one, and the one in three, by whom all nature hath creation, eternal Father, Spirit, Word. Praise to the Lord. Of, of my salvation. Salvation is of Christ, the Lord. There are men who draw me. St. Patrick, I would have loved to spend time with him. St. Patrick, Paul, a lot of these guys I would like to spend time with. But I want to share with you a very sad thing for me this week. A very, very sad thing. Uh, Friday afternoon I got word that Larry Crabb teacher passed away, 77. And uh, it sobered me for a long time that night. I would drive four hours from East Lansing, Michigan, down to Winona Lake for four hours in a car just to sit under Larry and Dan that afternoon and then jump in the car four hours and drive back. I did that for a year. And Larry... uh, I count as one of these men that stepped in the corner of my life as a filled in the gap, and I just I was still like you, just trying to figure out this life. And Larry and Dan were mentors, models for men who I thought I want to be like these guys. Larry was uh, uh, influenced by his father. And I had a chance to have breakfast with his father at a time when Larry was being personally attacked, when Christian counseling was being uh, undermined by a lot of Christians who said that's not biblical. And he went through a terrible time. But I had time with his father, and, and I said, how do you help your son? And Larry's dad said, you know, uh, it's, you don't fight those battles. You stay focused on Christ. And he did. And I don't know of any man, that I, very few men. Uh, there are men who have been invested in, in my life. Um, Don Hur taught me how to do Bible study. Then there was Rod Beidler. There are men who have, Sam Clark, um, Jim Harrelson, Jim Peterson. As I've been around these men who were Christ-centered, I want to be like these men. And God has blessed me with these guys. But with Larry and Dan, those guys were special. And so Larry left me with one one challenge, I would invitation. He would say, you know, Jerry, the whole thing, he said this to the class, he says, the whole thing base, is based on your one belief that Satan wants to destroy, that God is good. And more... Um, And he's better at that than you can imagine. And so the real struggle of growing in Christ is do you believe that the grace of Christ is sufficient? That fundamentally at the core, your faith is going to be developed upon that answer. He's good. He's this good. He's that good. He's that good. To the degree that you understand that goodness is the same degree that you have faith in the goodness of God. Your understanding of the goodness is the measure of your faith. And Larry helped me understand that that finding God is developing through Christ an unshakable confidence in God's absolute goodness and his perfect love. No matter what what we may experience, and that's where I know that through that time, that that whatever our 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 passions are, they're just they're misguided misdirected because they're not focused on Christ. And so if you find what you want to find, it's not what you want to find. Once you get what you get, it's not what you want. And Jesus said it this way, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for me will find it. And Larry was very honest, probably the most honest man I knew, and humble. But Larry would bring this truth to me, (coughs) to all of those in the class, we come into the world relentlessly narcissistic, resisting the kind of rigorous self-examination that reveals what is ugly in us and what is our impact on others. And he would go on to say that if you don't understand how our need as human beings, that we're so needy, that if you don't understand that there's no Relevance for the gospel. And the gospel just becomes a one choice among many. But once you understand that there's no one else that can change you from the inside out like Christ can, then you're drawn to Christ. You need Christ. And too often, we live with our felt well-being as our primary concern. We want to feel good. We want to feel comfortable. We don't want to be disturbed. So Jonah Get out and go to Nineveh. No way. And under that comfortable fig tree shade, he got angry with God. We're concerned about our primarily uh, our, our personal peace. But as we continue, we are incurably addicted to ourselves and powerless to resist whatever temptations promise in the sense of instant happiness we seek. That's our, comp- that's our competition. What's wrong with the world? Me. What's wrong with me? Me. Inside <laughs> these competing desires. What I want is what I want. It's not what God wants. And yet that's what Larry taught me. I just, so I owe that. And, I, and he took that. He stole that uh, from Paul. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live. Paul understood that. I don't. We still are learning, but Paul did. But Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, that goodness, the faith. He loved me. He gave himself for me. And that's what's competing his desires against what you want. And so you have an unbelievable privilege to reshape and shift your soul into that which really matters, is the Lord who made you, the Lord who wants you, the Lord who cares about you. And spending time with him is what Paul would say, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who who existing in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God, a thing to be grasped. It wasn't on his radar. No competition, no, com- no comparison. It was just, I want to do what you want me to do. But he emptied himself. <clears throat> and he, taking the form of a servant, a bond servant, he chose to have that relationship. Though he was free, he, didn't, he had no obligation or duty. He did so out of desire to go back and be with the master. That's what a bond servant is. And he was made in human likeness. And he gave himself fully as a man to Christ, uh, to, God's fa- to God the Father, and to the Holy Spirit. But he wasn't preoccupied or self-absorbed in trying to prove anything, trying to impress anybody. He was just who he was. And who he was, he gave himself. We are plain in God's eyes. He knows who we are. And that's who God wants us to be, who we are, so that we can give ourselves, but not to think less of ourselves. As C.S. Lewis put it this way humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And being preoccupied with other things than my own agenda or others' agendas. It's just like, I want God's agenda. And, and so the question that Jeremiah would say, are you seeking great things for yourself? Don't do it. Why bring great disaster upon all these people? But I will give you your life as a reward wherever you go. I, the Lord, have spoken. If you want great things, seek Christ. And being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself. Jesus humbled himself. I want to talk about this. David would say, my heart is not proud, my eyes are not haughty, I do not concern myself with great matters or the things too wonderful. It's not about success, it's not about those things. But Jesus had all these success, all these riches, all the glory, and he left it all. And you think about, he humbled himself. And this attitude is what we are to have if we have the mind of Christ. I want to share some thoughts as I thought about this. There are lots of thoughts here, so I'm going to run through them quickly. So you'll get the point. And the point is, he humbled himself. He was not a glory hound or seeking to be a celebrity. He came from a defeated nation, which was still poor and occupied and oppressed. He came from the other side of the tracks. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He started out the bottom as a child and progressed through the ranks. He learned to sit under the teachers and submitted to his leaders. His occupational choice was a carpenter, a mere woodworker, blue-collar. He was not insisting on doing things his way, but he knew how to wait on the Holy Spirit. He chose to be with friends. He chose to be friends with those who were ordinary, They had accents. He wasn't a pretentious know-it-all, but he connected with and shared with educated people and he got down on their level. Jesus was willing to be challenged in temptation, didn't back away, but he trusted God's strength, not his own. He was willing to endure long days of walking, long days of working and healing and giving without complaining, continually, always putting others first. He did not move or speak independently nor demand his way without the Father's involvement. He knew his limitations and he needed the help of the Holy Spirit. He laid his prerogatives of personal comfort and privileges aside to suffer in order order to help us gain access to the throne of grace. He was humbled even when he was tortured. Yet he forgave his torturers. He was betrayed and misrepresented abused and mocked even in his death. He was willing to battle sin in order to break sin's power so we could be released from sin falsehood and folly. He was humble enough to embrace our entire to enter into our selfish proud misguided thinking and still call us friends. Jesus was humble enough to give us his grace and his reputation of righteousness so that we would know the Father as he did. Jesus was humble enough to entrust the redemptive ministry to 12 untrained men in three years, no names really, to reach the world with the gospel. He was humble enough and meek enough to forgive us and to teach us how to have new life in in him. Come to me, he said, if you're weary, because I'm humble, lowly, meek. And I'll share with you. He was willing to have his heart broken so that we would have our hearts healed. Jesus Christ was humble enough to invite you and me to his banqueting table. Mm. He's humble and he wants to share eternity with you and me. That's our invitation. That's our privilege to the higher joy that to know this Christ as St. Patrick did, as, as Paul did, as Larry did. Paul goes on to talk about two men, which we'll look at next week, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus Epaphroditus was from Philippi. Timothy, Paul picked up in Derby over in Laconia. And these men spent time together, fellowshipping one-on-one, life-on-life, heart-to-heart, sharing about Christ, learning about Christ from each other. And that's the kind of relationship Paul wanted the Philippians to know. That with each other in, in the church, to have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus is the same mind that's in the pew. And that as you are humble and knowing the privilege that you have in Christ, that the competing passions that you struggle with, but the focus is looking up, single-minded and the desire to be with Christ, that you can live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but enjoy the company of the lowly. Anybody here lowly? Raise your hand if you're lowly, humbly. That's all of us. We're all messed up. We all need Christ. Do not be conceited. And when Jesus would, uh, remember he would say, when you're going to the the banqueting table, don't go to that seat of honor. Don't go seek that first place to be close to the he told them a parable when somebody invites you to a wedding feast don't take the place of honor for the person more distinguished than you may have been invited and then you'll be embarrassed because he says just get up and get out of here give the seat to this guy let God choose those ways of honor for you but all these have to do with knowing Christ and knowing Christ is what St. Pat would say in his prayer I bind myself to thee Today, in the strong name of the Trinity, by invocation of the name, the three in one, and the one in three. Let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. No competing passions, but just the compelling privilege. You are made plain in God's sight, and you belong to him.